chapter 4. We are continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians today. Um, Paul's in the middle of an extended uh, argument that justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law. Um, he is just, he's harping on this. He's hitting it from every angle. Um, he really cares about these Galatian believers. This is a church he planted. These are people he loves and cares for, and he is devoted to, re- to refuting the false teachings uh, being spread among them by the Judaizers, those who say that keeping the law is a requirement. It's a necessary step in being made right with God. Paul's already made his argument to Galatians based on a few things, based on his own experience. He said, look at my life. That's a testament to the true gospel of Jesus Christ by justification, by faith alone, received uh, by faith, but uh, because of grace. Um, He's given a careful interpretation of Scripture. He's delved into the Old Testament law and given defenses from there. And he's even uh, looked to uh, to the Galatians' own experience of Paul as they received him, their own knowledge of him, and he's made a personal appeal. So he's hitting at it from every angle. Today, Paul gives one final argument, or rather an, an illustration from Scripture. Uh, he wants his audience to see vividly the, 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 the sheer folly and slavery of being under the law. Um, and he wants them to rather embrace, rejoice in, and stand firm in the freedom that comes from trusting in God's promises instead of in our actions. And so today we're going to consider the illustration that Paul presents. We're going to start reading in verse 21. We're going to read through uh, chapter, first, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And then we are going to uh, pray together uh, for God's help in the preaching of his word. So we're going to read together Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. This is God's divinely inspired word for us today. It says this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are, children of the, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. 
Lord, we ask for your help. We just read about slavery and freedom, about allegories of covenants, scripture verses that might seem very obscure to us. But Lord, I pray that you would cut through the fog of, of the lack of our lack of understanding. I pray that you give us spiritual eyes to see the truth that you intend uh, to make clear to us today. Lord, we, we trust that your word is for our good. Um, Lord, you promise that your word will succeed in all that you intend for it to accomplish. And so we ask that you now would make good on that promise. Uh, accomplish in our hearts what you intend to today through your word. So we ask that by your spirit you would transform our lives and help us see Christ more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I started reading a book um, on evangelism by uh, a guy named John Leonard. Um, and in it, Leonard motivates his, his, um, his readers uh, to, uh, to re-engage with the beauty of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, and he does it in a compelling way. He recounts a story, which I find pretty entertaining. He recounts a story of his 40th birthday, where his, uh, his family decides to surprise him with a gift of parasailing. Um, but he's terrified of parasailing. Uh, this, this seems uh, pretty scary to him. He becomes especially nervous when he learns that his wife actually took out a life insurance policy just in case things went south. And so leading up to this trip, I mean, he's, he's super nervous and, and he's, he's fixated on learning exactly what he needs to do to make sure he's going to land safely and, and make it home. He's thinking, for my 40th birthday, I would like to live to see my 41st birthday. Um, and so he's, he's fixated on what, what, what do I need to do? Uh, he asks the check-in attendant, okay, what am I supposed to do? They say, just get in the van, you'll learn at the top. He gets in the, he gets in the van, asks the van driver, hey, uh, excuse me, he interrupts his conversation, uh, what, am I, what am I supposed to do now? He's like, well, you'll learn at the top, just hold on. He gets at the top and asks, okay, now what am I supposed to do? We'll go stand over by the edge of the cliff, we'll, we'll give you some more instructions soon. So he's waiting nervously by the edge of this cliff, uh, still having no idea exactly what he's supposed to do. And here's how he recounts the next few moments. I'm going to just read. It's a longer excerpt, but it's good storytelling. So just bear with me here. It's good. Um, Leonard writes, said, After getting everyone else ready, the gentleman came over and laid out our parachute on the ground. I once more asked him, what am I to do? He handed me a harness and told me to put it on. What do you want me to do now? I asked. He explained, I'm going to clip my harness under your harness, and then I want you to lean forward and step off the cliff. Shouldn't I be behind you? No, because I'm hooked into you, he said. You simply lean forward and step off the cliff. I asked, what about my hands? What should I do with them? Hold on to these ropes. I said, Great, I exclaimed. Finally, something I get to do. What do holding on to these ropes do? He says, those ropes uh, keep your hands out of my face. <laughs> so, so we edged forward until I could see over the cliff. Then he said to me impatiently, Lean forward and step off the cliff. Shouldn't we count to three or something? <laughs> no, just lean forward, step off the cliff, he repeated. Closing my eyes, we leaned forward, causing the parachute to rise and fill with air. I stepped out, and immediately we were lifted off the ground. I opened my eyes and realized I wasn't crashing to my death, but was being carried up by the thermal winds. As we banked to the left, continuing to rise, I could hear the swooshing of the wind as we were swept along the cliffs. And he continues to describe the beautiful encounter that that was. All the fear melted away, and he enjoyed watching birds and seeing nests in the crags of the cliff. 
Leonard says that that's what salvation is like. We're fixated on the question, often, what do I need to do? And Jesus' consistent answer is, trust me. I've got you. Don't try to figure everything out. Don't try to help me do what I'm saying I'm going to do. Just lean forward and step off the cliff. I've got you. Just as Leonard wanted to help somehow hold on to some ropes or do something that would contribute to his safety, so we have the instinct, same instinct to save ourselves, to try to accomplish something, to contribute in some way. We think that there's some set of instructions that we can follow and everything's going to be fine. You know, if I can just figure out steps A, B, and C, I'll be good. But in reality, God is telling us, don't try to figure it all out. Don't try to accomplish your own salvation. You can't. Just trust in me. That's all you need to do. Paul's addressing the same exact tendency in the verses we read today of this desire to figure it out on our own, to trust ourselves. Verse 21 tells us that the Galatians, as Paul refers to them, were desiring to be under the law, it says. That is, wanting to be made right with God through following the law. But that will not suffice. We come up with our own schemes for salvation when all we need to do is trust God's promise. But Paul's main point in our passage today is this. He says salvation comes not through human scheming, not through our plans, but through divine promise, through what God has said that he will do. We have this tendency to figure things out for ourselves. John Leonard had it. The Galatians had it. The Judaizers who were teaching the Galatians this false truth, they had it. That's why they were motivated. No, well, you've got a good basis. Paul started you off in the right place. Yeah, there's Jesus, but you also need fill in the blank. You need to fill, fulfill the law. If you're male, you need to be circumcised. Soon we'll learn, as Paul will go on, that Abraham and his wife Sarah had the same tendency as well. And we have the same tendency, trying to save ourselves, trying to make ourselves right with God, earn his favor, feel like we're, we're in, in cahoots with him because of something we've done, some small contribution maybe. But there is good news for us to hear today, friends. We do not have to rely on, we cannot rely on our own schemes to be right with God. We need only to trust in God's promise, and in doing so, we are going to find joy and we are going to find freedom. And so, we inherit this freedom through divine promise, not through human scheming. We're going to see this as we step through Paul's illustration of this principle from Scripture. So we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider, first, the history that Paul references. Second, the, the allegory that Paul introduces. And then finally, the application that Paul makes from that. So let's start with the history that Paul references. The history is that Abraham had two sons. Paul begins with a question in verse 21. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, okay, you think the law has the key to salvation? Okay, then you should probably actually listen to what it says. So he takes them right back to what they're calling their basis for hope. He says, okay, let's go there. What does it say? Verse 22, for it is written, here we go, what's written? That Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And we learn about this in Genesis, uh, that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is a son of Hagar. Uh, she is a slave woman that was given to Abraham as a wife in order to bear a son. But then Isaac, his other son, was the son of Sarah, a free woman. 
uh, and Abraham's first wife. So what's significant about these two sons? Well, Paul says this in verse 23. He says, The son of the slave, so the son of Hagar, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. If we look back in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, we read all about this. God made a promise to Abraham early on that Abraham would be blessed and that he would be a great nation and that his offspring would be greater than the number of the stars in heaven. But there was a problem. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was infertile. In fact, the very first time Sarah is even mentioned in the Bible, the way she's introduced to us, it stated that she was barren and had no child. It's clear from the get-go. This woman cannot produce children. And so when God calls Abraham at age 75, it's the first call, and promises him offspring, it's definitely not something that's on Abraham's radar. Since to this point, Sarah was childless and probably around age 65. So they've gotten to this point in their lives, no kids. God says, you're going to be a father of many, of nations. So a decade goes by, and no kid has happened. And God revisits Abraham and reaffirms to him that he'll have countless children, but Sarah remains childless. They're now 85 and 75. So frustrated with waiting, Sarah concludes, you know what? God's not going to make good on this promise. It's not, at least it's not the way we think it's going to happen. So she devises a scheme. She says to Abraham in Genesis 16 too, she says this, Behold now, look at, where her, look at where her perspective of God reveals itself. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Abraham goes along with Sarah's plan. He takes Hagar the slave as his wife, and he gets her pregnant. Hagar gives birth to a boy, and they name him Ishmael. But this son of the slave wasn't what God had in mind when he promised Abraham offspring. Over a decade after Ishmael is born, God visits Abraham yet again, and now he makes it clear to Abraham that he will have a son by Sarah. So I haven't changed my plan. Still going to have, have you be a father of many through Sarah. And when Abraham hears it, he, he, he laughed uh, in unbelief. He thought, that, that, that cannot be. At this point, he's 99 years old. His wife is 90 years old, still without children. God insists, nope, I'm still going to establish my covenant with Sarah's son, not Hagar's. At this point, Abraham's like, hey, you know what? Forget plan A. We've got plan B. We've got Ishmael. He's like a 13-year-old. He's, he's, my, he's my son. I love him. Can you bless him instead? And God says, I'm going to bless him, sure, but I'm not going to make my covenant with him. I haven't changed my plan. It's going to be through Sarah's son. The Lord visits Abraham and Sarah in a few months later and says again that Sarah's going to have a son within one year. So now he's given a timeline for it. Now, by this time, Sarah's already been through menopause. Uh, Genesis 18.11 states that the, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And now when Sarah hears this promise from God, she laughs in unbelief. But God challenges Sarah and says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? We can hear that same question to us when we laugh in unbelief at God saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, well, this I feel pretty forsaken right now because if you were with me, this is not what life would feel like. He says, no, 
I'm still making good on my promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, apparently not. Because sure enough, Sarah, an infertile, postmenopausal, 90-year-old woman, gets pregnant and gives birth to a healthy baby boy, Isaac. The son, the son of the free woman, is born not according to the flesh. This is nothing flesh could produce. This is the son born through promise. While Sarah and Abraham schemed up a way to get an heir, that is, have a kid by a slave woman, God's promise and plan were different. Ishmael was born according to the flesh, a biological son, sure, of Abraham, but not the heir of the covenant that God said he'd make with Abraham's offspring. Isaac, on the other hand, was born through promise. Nothing shy of a miracle, nothing shy of a miracle, brought Isaac, the divinely promised son, into this world. A quick note for us. Note here the, the miraculous power of God. Uh, like Abraham and Sarah, we can just be all too quick uh, to assume that things, some things, certainly, are just too hard for God. We might not say it out loud, but we probably believe it in our hearts. That just seems too hard. I, I, there's no way you're really going to provide a job for me. I have been working hard at this. It's been a year. It's been two years. I, I just don't think that's what you're going to do anymore. You say you're going you're gonna to provide for all my needs. I don't know, Lord. I'm not seeing it happen. But that's not the case. God always keeps his promises. We can be too quick to assume that some things are too hard to God, but God wants us, or that we can think that, we, that God wants us to help him out in some way, to, to help him make good on his promises. Um, but that's, or that God's really not going to keep his promises at all. But to the contrary, nothing is too hard for God. God doesn't need our help, and God will keep every single one of his promises. They will not fail. It says all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's in Christ. We can hold that true. God will keep every promise, and we don't need to doubt him. We don't need to come up with our own solutions. We need only to trust him and wait on him. So why does Paul bring up this story? Why does he point out this bit of history? What point is he trying to make? Well, we see in this next portion of Paul's writing uh, the allegory, which is that these women are two covenants. So he's given this bit of history. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, has its own story to teach us about trusting God. But what is that, how does that apply to the Galatians' experience right now? Why is he bringing that one up? Well, he makes an allegory. He's now going to focus his attention on the two women in the story that we are counted, Hagar and Sarah. He's going to do so allegorically. Now, quick note on allegory. It may not be a category that we're terribly familiar with in terms of literature. Um, it's, a, it's a literary form where, we, where a deeper meaning lies beneath the surface of the obvious meaning of the words. It comes from the words other and speaking. So it's, you say one thing, but we really are going to say one thing and mean yet another. So it's this additional meaning. Now, Paul's decision to speak allegorically here has caused trouble for Bible scholars for centuries. <laughs> it's weird. It's awkward. It doesn't feel natural. Uh, and some have taken it. Some, some theologians go, okay, well, if Paul gets to use allegory here with the Old Testament, then we can do this whenever we want. Um, and, and so they, they now use that as license to find meaning where it isn't, uh, coming up with off-base interpretations of Scripture, uh, conclusions that the Scriptures would not, in fact, back up. So there's one danger to use allegory in, a, in an abusive way to, to basically say, I'll, just, I'll take it to mean whatever I want, which, by the way, we do have some of this leaning, this tendency, 
within current culture to go, well, the Old Testament was, it was literature, but it wasn't historical narrative. It was more of a, a mystic explanation of, of how the world began and, 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 and our forefathers, you know, but it was mainly to teach us morals. It wasn't about real people. There's a tendency pulling that way. So, so there's, there's danger in taking that approach because then we, we come up with really off-base things. So others go the opposite side and say, okay, no, they say, you know what? Allegory is an unsuitable interpretive paradigm prescription uh, for, for scripture, rather, for that very reason. And some have even said, like, Paul's out of line. Like, now he's, he's, he's making a, a, a bad conclusion. But we need to realize two things. First, Paul is responding to teaching that the Galatians are receiving. He's refuting false teaching, and it's, it's, it's likely that his opponents first tried to use allegory, possibly from this passage, uh, to make their argument. It's, it's probable and I could see this being easy enough for them to make, to make this connection. They say, okay, you've got Abraham with two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is the son of the promise. He's the covenant uh, bearer. Ishmael's outside that. Isaac's the one with the law. You know, Isaac, uh, his offspring, uh, from his offspring comes Moses and the law, and so they're all keeping the law. Ishmael's kind of this Gentile offshoot. So if the one of the promise is the one in with the people of God, the Jews, and Ishmael's off on the side, doesn't that make sense to then be, we need to follow the law. We need to be like Isaac. We need to be the son of the promise. We need to hold the covenant, the, the sign of the covenant, being circumcision and the law and everything like that. So it's possible. We don't know for certain. We don't have the letters or the teachings that they were given to Galatians. But it's possible they were trying to make such an argument. So Paul might be trying to take their allegory and turn it on its head. Because what he does is it's, it's, it's not natural. He's saying... You Gentiles, you people not part of, of Israel from Isaac, you guys are the sons of the promise of Isaac. And in fact, the Judaizers who are bloodline relatives of Isaac, he's saying they're the sons of Ishmael, of the slave woman. So it's, it's, he's flipping something on its head. So it's very possible he's, re he's responding uh, to say, you know, even there you're wrong. You're using a bad allegory to make your defense, but Scripture really says the other. Second thing is that Paul's use of allegory does not deny the historical facts that we already read about. He doesn't say, well, this was only allegorical, and here's what it meant to say. He's saying, we can, we can take this as an illustration, as allegory. It's, it's not quite like Pilgrim's Progress, for instance, which was composed as allegory. It doesn't have a literal meaning. It has an allegorical meaning. We apply the principles to our Christian life. Paul's not saying that, that Genesis was written as an allegory. He's saying, rather, I'm going to make a point allegorically using Genesis as my illustration. Um, and Paul's already made his, his point earlier about the freedom that Christ brings and the slavery that the law brings. We've been reading about that uh, throughout this uh, study. But now he just wants to illustrate further uh, and illuminate this truth. Uh, John Calvin puts it well. He says this uh, about this passage. It says, Paul follows up his earlier teaching with a fine illustration. It says, as an argument, it is not very strong. He's right. As an argument, it's not very strong. But as confirmation of his earlier reasoning, it is not to be despised. So with that awareness and uh, approach to Scripture, our own, uh, our own approach is being uh, informed by how we look at Scripture. It is... Uh, if it says it's literal, then we take it as literal. If it says it's figurative, then we take it as figurative. But we take Scripture, and now we want to learn what kind of illustration Paul's actually making here. So uh, let's dive into the allegory itself. 
Paul says that the women, Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. Okay, covenant one. The first covenant is Hagar. She's the covenant made on Mount Sinai in Arabia. Mount Sinai is, is that mountain uh, on which God gave Moses uh, the law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's the mountain that God descended on in fire that scared the living daylights out of the Israelites. I mean, the whole thing was smoking, and they're like, if you, God says, if you come touch this mountain, anything that touches this mountain, even a beast that comes touch this mountain, it's going to die. That's my holiness, aware, you know, present. I'm supposed to make you afraid. I am the holy God of Israel coming down, and you are not holy, and so you should be scared. And here's my law that gives you boundaries and rules to keep that say, here's how we can access God without being killed by being in his presence. That's the law given on Mount Sinai. It proved to be a basis for slavery for Israel. Previously in his letter, Paul describes God's law this way. In the previous chapter, Galatians 3, Galatians 3 in verse 22, Paul writes that Scripture imprisoned everything in it. We don't usually think of that. Scripture imprisoned. That's a weird way of talking about scripture. Doesn't scripture liberate? Well, when he's talking about the law, he says, ah, the law doesn't really liberate. The law imprisons everything under it. In the next verse, he writes that before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Friends, the law imprisons. It holds captive. It enslaves those who are under it. Why? because its demands can never be kept by us. All it does is condemn us for not living up to its standard. It's fitting that Paul allegorizes Hagar, the, the woman enslaved with her son. She and her son were slaves. He allegorizes her as the covenant of Mount Sinai, the covenant that enslaves those who try to live by and under the law. And this enslavement extends to the then present day Jerusalem, which is built on a different mountain, Mount Zion, in the middle of Israel. Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is, is built on top of. And elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Hebrews, this is interesting. Mount Sinai is contrasted with Mount Zion. Or, sorry, with, yeah, Mount Sinai is contrasted with Mount Zion. Because in that analogy, Sinai represents God's holy and terrifying presence in a consuming fire, like we talked about. But then Zion represents God dwelling beautifully with his people in the Ark of the Covenant, within the temple where man could access God uh, through, through, the, through the, the rules and regulations set up by the law. So elsewhere in Scripture, there's a contrast between Zion and Sinai. But here... Paul says that Mount Sinai, the location of the covenant of slavery, it corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, his present day. That is, he's saying that even Jerusalem on Mount Zion, this place where God dwells with man in a temple rather than on a burning mountain, in a temple beautifully laden, he says even this Jerusalem is in slavery because it's still bound with the same captivity that the law placed on Israel. Verse 25, he sums it up like this. He says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for, here's why it corresponds, for she is in slavery with her children. Israelites, during Paul's day, are in slavery uh, like their mother, Hagar. And it's what he's saying. Their spiritual mother, 
Hagar. They haven't broken free. They're still under the law. His point is this. Those under the law, given on Mount Sinai and continued into Mount Zion on Jerusalem, are as much slaves as Hagar and her son. That would have been jarring uh, for any Jew to hear because they're going, we're not slaves of the, we're not, we're not heirs of the slave. We're free. We're the, we're the chosen people of God. We're the descendants of Isaac, for goodness sake. This is the one through whom all of God's promises came, the blessing of the nations. How can you say that we are bound? How can you say that we are slaves? But the Judaizers, though physical descendants of Sarah, in reality, what Paul's saying, you are spiritual descendants of Hagar, the slave woman, and are themselves spiritual slaves. He said, you have not broken free from spiritual slavery. See, friends, there's no hope in keeping the law. Uh, it only leads to slavery. We cannot earn our way to God by keeping it. We, the more we try, the harder we try to keep the law, the tighter its chains bind and enslave us. And I don't know if you felt this personally. I remember a time in my life as a teenager, I would just, my conscience would be torn up. I was feeling like I was underperforming. I, I, I remember this, it's almost silly as I look back on it now, but then it was very hard. Wednesday nights were chore nights, or at least they were, <laughs> Wednesday nights was when we were supposed to have our chores done by, so of course I waited till Wednesday night to start my weekly chores. And, um, and I, would, I, I, was, I was responsible for sweeping and mopping the floors, and um, I'm pouring water everywhere. Um, and so I'm you know, responsible for cleaning up, the, the sweeping the floors and mopping the floors, and just, I had this sense, this, this guilt that I haven't done enough. I haven't gotten, oh, there's this little bit of extra speck in this corner, and I'm supposed to move this couch and get the dust from under there and have to mop all the corners, and if it's not wet enough, I've got to re-wet the mop. And just this guilt ridden, and it wasn't like my parents were saying any of that. It wasn't them. They weren't slave masters, but I felt enslaved to doing good enough. I couldn't get it right, and that was just a picture of my perspective of God uh, toward me in that time of life was, you, yeah, you know what? You missed, you missed a spot. You didn't do good enough. You're not living up. You aren't keeping up. You are disappointing. How can I call you my son? You keep failing again and again and again. That's slavery. To think that God's perspective of us depends upon our performance at all. It doesn't. Not even a tiniest bit. What do I do with my hands? Hold on the ropes. Just keep them out of my face. I've got you. You don't have to do anything. Lean forward, step off the cliff. All that we do is trust. There's absolutely nothing we contribute. Anything else is slavery. That's the first covenant. It's a covenant of slavery. That's option one. What's the other option? This is the good stuff. The other covenant is Sarah, the free woman. Paul writes this in verse 26. He says, the, but in contrast to the present Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. In contrast to both Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, the covenant of freedom is a Jerusalem above, a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly dwelling, God dwelling in heaven, Jesus at his right hand, holding the door open for us to have access to God, one not established in a myriad of rules and regulations for how we access God. One where God has torn the temple curtain in two to make access available to us sinners. Paul, I'm getting excited here. We have to wait for a second. Paul doesn't dig deeper right now into why this covenant is one of freedom. 
He saves that for later. We will too. Almost ahead of myself there. But for now, okay, now he quotes scripture that illustrates at least the joy that is to be, that, that is to be a part of this covenant under the free woman. Paul quotes from Isaiah here. The context in Isaiah that Paul is quoting from is that Israel is in Babylonian exile. Uh, they're in trouble. They screwed up big time. They've been worshiping idols for generations. God says, okay, you're not learning the lesson you are going to be exiled into Babylon, the bad guys, like the real, real bad guys. And so he sends them to live as what? As slaves in Babylon for an entire lifetime, for 70 years. That's a long time. In the midst of that, in the midst of Israel's hopelessness of being, of, of being lifeless and enslaved in a land that's not even their own, God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah, which Paul quotes in verse 27. So this is what God says to, Isaiah, or to God's people, Israel, through Isaiah, in enslavement. He says this, Rejoice. What? Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Those who do not bear, that's, that's Sarah. The one who has a husband, Hagar was given as a wife to Abraham. She had a son. So Sarah here is mourning. I can't have a son. God's not going to be good to me. He's not going to prove good on his promises. Isaiah, speaking to God's people, they're probably thinking of that context when he, when he says these words, Rejoice, O barren one, I've got a plan for you. You who do not you who are not in labor, break forth and cry aloud. Guys, this is the joy of those who live under the covenant of freedom, trusting in God's promise to make good on everything he said he's do, he'll do. The joy is that of new life. You're going to have children, is what God's saying, spiritually to captive Israel. New life is the kind of joy we find in the covenant of freedom. I have the incredible privilege of being the father of two boys. And, um, and for both of my son's births, I was able to be present right when they were born. And uh, when they're born, man, uh, I experienced a feeling that is unmatched by any feeling in this entire world. Uh, I was joyful down to my bones uh, when I finally got to meet them. All the stress of all the leading up months and the pain and the morning sickness and you're exhausted and of, of labor and the difficulty that that is, all the stress and the tension of waiting for them to arrive finally melted away with just tears of relief and happiness. They're here, and I love you. That's the sort of joy that belongs to all who are in the covenant of freedom. So for even, even those who today long to have children and cannot. That, that broken hope, that, that lost desire, God's saying, you know what? I'm going to replace that with joy. You're going to have life and life abundant because you are a child not of the slave but of the free. Just as Sarah, the barren one, rejoiced in the son given to her by promise. So we spiritually dead people Rejoice at the new life that God has given us by his spirit. 
Friends, it is a good thing to be under the covenant of freedom and not of slavery. There is joy, joy of new life for those that God has called by his promise. And so Paul leads, this leads rather to Paul's final point in this section, which is the application. What do we do with this? The application is this. Choose freedom, not slavery. We've seen several parallels here. We've got Ishmael and Isaac, Hagar and Sarah, slave and free, born according to the flesh, man's own schemes, born through promise, God's divine purpose. And you've got Mount Sinai, and then you have the Jerusalem above. And Paul rejoices that his fellow Galatian believers, who he calls brothers, kinsmen, he's a Jew, they're Gentiles, he says, you are my brothers, spiritual brothers. We share the same spiritual blood. He says... He rejoices that they are decidedly and, uh, and, and nowhere else but the second camp. Isaac, Sarah, free, promise, the heavenly Jerusalem. He says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He says, that's who you are. That is a happy state. But as such, they experience the same sort of persecution that Isaac did. In verse 29, Paul says this. He says, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who is born according to the Spirit, that's Isaac, so also it is now. So when did Ishmael persecute Isaac? There's not a whole lot of evidence of that in Scripture. Could have been extra scriptural evidence for it, but there's at least two points where we see some stuff going on in Scripture. In Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord spoke about Ishmael when he was yet in the womb. This is how God spoke about Ishmael, who was yet to be born. He says, he, Ishmael, shall be a wild donkey of a man like out there going, just like taking on the world. <laughs> wild donkey of a man. I don't want to meet a wild donkey. I would be afraid to. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's combative. He's argumentative. And he's, he's dwelling against all, over against all his kinsmen, his flesh, his brothers and sisters. His kinsmen included Isaac, his half-brother. We get a glimpse of how Ishmael treated Isaac in Genesis 21, where Isaac uh, grows as an infant. Eventually, he is weaned, and so Abraham throws this big party, a celebration. Ah, oh, my, my little baby boy, the one of promise, is, is weaned. Uh, let's, let's throw a party. So you have a feast, uh, but during this party, Ishmael, who's now a teenager, uh, laughs, it says, at Isaac most likely in mockery because of the way that his, um, I guess, who would that be? His stepmom? Uh, not quite. Sarah responds. Sarah sees it and goes, hold on, that's not right. He laughs in mockery. Ishmael may have thought of himself as the rightful firstborn of Abraham. I was born first. I'm the firstborn, which means I'm the heir of everything promised to Abraham. I'm the heir of the land. I'm the heir of whatever God told Abraham. He might be thinking that's how he stands. And so he laughs at his baby brother. Yeah, yeah, you guys are throwing a big party for this little baby boy who's just crying on the ground, but I'm, I'm, I'm really superior to him. Uh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know it. Yeah, he's getting a lot of attention today, but I've got it good. But now, Paul says, uh, in, in his day, that those who are spiritual descendants of Ishmael, those still enslaved under the law, they persecute those who believe that they are inferior to them, to the, the Gentile believers. Uh, those who don't think they need circumcision, 
uh, is necessary for right standing of God. Paul says that the, the Judaizers and their attempts to convince the Galatians, who they probably saw as, oh, you're just a little baby, you don't know anything. I'm gonna, <laughs> it's kind of laughable. Uh, he says their attempts to con- convince the Gentile believers to be under the law, that that attempt was persecution. That's the word Paul uses here, persecuting them as they troubled their consciences and questioned the solid foundation of truth that Paul had laid for the Galatian believers. So this is a quick note. Persecution doesn't always look like physical abuse, like we might think it does. You know, well, in other countries, people get, you know, they get persecuted. They're getting imprisoned and enslaved and maybe murdered. And that is persecution for, for your faith. But Paul also says that not all persecution looks that way. Uh, sometimes it looks like someone undermining your faith or belittling you because of what you believe, or especially causing you to doubt what you know to be true. What God's word has said, here's what's truth. Trust me, believe me. There's evidences outside, but you have to trust me. And they're going, are you sure about that? I don't know. And, and, you're, getting, and, you're, and you're, you're getting shifted off the basis that you were brought up on. That's persecution. And what is the correct response to such people? Those who cause much trouble among the people of God, belittling their authentic standing before God. Well, the same response, the response here is the same response that was appropriate toward Ishmael, the son of the slave woman. Paul says this in verse 30. He says, but what does scripture say? In other words, what would it say in that response to Ishmael persecuting Isaac? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Paul here is quoting Sarah, who witnessed Ishmael laughing at his baby brother. And Sarah spoke these words to cast out the slave woman and her son to Abraham, which then God affirmed, yes, Abraham, do that. That's for me. Because Abraham's like, no, I like Ishmael. What are you talking about? He's kind of my favorite. He's a 13-year-old son. He can play ball, and maybe maybe he'll get to be part of this inheritance. God says, nope, that's not my plan. That was your plan. It's not my plan. Cast him out. Why? Why cast Ishmael out? Because he was not to be an heir with Isaac. Only Isaac, the son of promise, was to inherit the promises and covenant that God gave to Abraham. And so also now the Judaizers, outside, or they are outside of the inheritance since they subscribe to the covenant of slavery. They are not heirs of the promise. And as such, they are to be cast out. They're not to be tolerated within the Galatian church. Their partial truths, their inept gospel, their self-righteous approach to Scripture have no place in the gathering of those who have experienced the freedom through God's promise. So what does it look like for us to do today? We don't really have itinerant preachers coming through and debunking or or trying to debunk our faith. But what does it look like today? Well, it may very well look like for us Choosing not to listen to false teachers that tempt your heart away from the truth of Christ or who distort it or downplay it or redefine it or add to it. Yeah, Jesus is good, but also we need to be inclusive. And that word is defined in worldly terms, not the Bible's. Or Jesus is good, but we also, we really, the kingdom looks like it's got to come now. And so that has really pertinent ramifications that are, that, are, that if you don't have that, you're, you're not in the in camp. You're, you're outside. You're not really after God's kingdom. And God goes, no, I, I came to save a people for myself through my blood. The same danger of false teachers exists today, except nowadays they're on YouTube 
or on blogs or on your podcast streaming service. It is not without spiritual risk that we open our hearts to teachings that aren't consistent with Scripture. That's not to say you can't ever listen to somebody who doesn't treat, teach perfect good truth. You know, None of us are going to get perfectly right. We're all sinners trying to understand and interpret and explain God's Word. But there is a spiritual risk and eventually a spiritual cost if what you're pouring into your soul throughout the entire week is something that isn't making you lean more toward God and dependence on Him, more, give you more faith in what Christ has done alone and not what you are doing, if it's pulling you away from that, there's danger there. Something else may sound more attractive, more reasonable, more up-to-date, more inclusive, as I mentioned earlier. But if it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins, it's going to only lead to slavery. Either slavery and self-righteous rule-keeping, like, like those who are tempting the Galatians, or a slavery in the other direction of a slavery back to sin of this gradual departure from the truth of Scripture to say it doesn't really matter so much what the Bible says as what the current cultural context is saying. That is slavery. You're now a slave to the world. You're a slave to uh, a worldly culture that's not from Scripture. So assess, I would say, as a pastor of yours, assess your media diet. Is what you're taking in helping you embrace the freedom of Christ's gospel, or is it tempting you away from it? It's tempting you away from it, I would say you could live without that. That would be good for your spiritual health. Freedom is found nowhere except in the gospel of freedom. And it's this gospel that Paul ends this section with. We never addressed how we are made free. Remember earlier we just said, here's what it's like to be free. It's joy. How are we made free? How is this possible? How are how are the children of promise, how, how, are, how are we made free? How are we those who experience this joy of new life? Well, here's how. Chapter 5, verse 1. Here's how we get free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's how we get freedom. Friends, freedom is found in Christ. It's not found in keeping law. It's not found in ignoring the law. Neither one of those. It's found in placing trust in the Messiah, the one who fulfilled that law that we cannot the one who satisfied its slavish demands that we were bound to, and the one who reconciled us to a God that we could not approach on our own. By dying on the cross, Christ broke the power of the law over us. He kept all its demands and then paid our penalty for failing to keep it. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, without Christ Jesus dying on the cross, there is no covenant of freedom. There's only slavery. It's only through Christ. Christ, the promised physical and spiritual descendant of Isaac, who fulfilled the promise of God and made, that God made to Abraham to bless the nations. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through what offspring? Through Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Hallelujah. I remember a song by Jimmy Needham. I don't know if anybody of you know Jimmy Needham, but he just has a song that goes, it is for freedom he set us free. And it's just basically that. It's, it is good that Christ has done it all. So what does Paul command his listeners to do with that truth? For freedom Christ has set us free, what do we do with that? He says, stand firm. Don't waver. Don't shift. Don't doubt. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Let us never abandon this freedom. Let us never drift to another teaching that exaggerates our obedience, the importance of it, in our right relationship with God. Let us never drift to a teaching that downplays Christ's sufficient righteousness in our right relationship with God. Dear believer in Christ, eradicate from your spiritual diet, from your own heart, the tendencies, the message that speaks a gospel apart from Christ died for your sins. If your heart says, Christ died for your sins, but now you've got to do a little bit more to be right with God. Say, no, stand firm. I'm not going to submit to another yoke of slavery. That is not what Christ came to do. He came to set us free. It is for freedom Christ set us free. Not free so that we could go back to a yoke of slavery. No, for freedom he has set you free. If you're not a believer in Christ, then embrace him today. There is freedom. Abandon your hopes of self-sufficiency. Don't take on this yoke of slavery. You think you might be able to do it. You can't. I'm sorry. You can't. God's standards are too high for you to keep. It only insults him for you to think that you can help him. Like the, like the guy on the, the parasailing, to think, I can help somehow. No, you can't. Stop, stop trying to. Let go of your ego. Admit your wrongdoings. Trust in the promise that all who believe in Christ Jesus will be saved and God will hold true to his promise. You'll experience the freedom and the spirit of that freedom. Like the man going parasailing in my opening story, as I was just mentioning, we need not fret. That's good for us to know. We need not fret about trying to do all the right things in order to be secure in our safety. Rather, we simply trust in Christ to do all the work. If we're attached to him, we're safe. We need only to trust, lean forward, step off the cliff, and he will be sure to carry us to safety. Let's pray. Dear God, we admit that our hearts regularly tend to drift away uh, from freedom, Lord, into slavery. Um, Lord, by default, we just think we're not that bad. We think somehow, somehow, uh, we can help you with our justification. Somehow, your perspective of me depends upon my performance, somehow. Um, But Lord, that's not true. And so we repent of believing that we contribute anything to our right standing before you. Lord, we acknowledge that it is in Christ alone and his work that we have uh, received your promise and an eternal inheritance. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for all that Christ has accomplished. I pray that you would help us live in the joy and the freedom of that. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from anything that would pull us away from that back into slavery. And Lord, we thank you for your son and we trust in him alone. And it's his name we pray all these things. Amen.